Hey there, it's Gary Parrish. It's Wednesday, December 12th, 2018. Welcome back to the Ion College Basketball Podcast. I got Matt Norlander here with me. And if you listen to Sunday night's podcast, uh, specifically the, the 43rd minute of Sunday night's podcast, you might remember that I, I told you there wasn't anything great on the schedule Monday or Tuesday, but that you should keep an eye on Villanova Penn at the Palestra because it had a chance to be interesting. Fast forward to Tuesday night. Things got interesting. Final score, Penn 78, Villanova 75. So the Wildcats 25-game Big 5 winning streak is over. And now Villanova is 8-3 and with a 27-point loss at home to Michigan, a loss at home to Furman, and a loss at Penn. That's two sub-100 Kimpom losses for the reigning national champions. And Javon Quinterly, the five-star freshman point guard, is now averaging just 8.6 minutes per game after playing only one minute against Penn. He has three DNPs in 11 games this season. And he apparently jumped on Instagram after the loss to Penn and posted the following quote, was my second choice for a reason. You probably know Quinterly was originally committed to Arizona, but then Arizona assistant Book Richardson got arrested, charged with federal crimes. His life got flipped upside down. Quinterly decommitted, signed with Villanova. It is not going well. Norlander, what do you make of Javon Quinterly, uh, the mess at Villanova, and this surprisingly bad start to the season? We got we got a uh, rocky situation here at a program that is not, at least as far as we can tell and can see, the, the success on the court is indicated strongly. Otherwise, they haven't really had any drama for a number of years. And, in fact, Jay Wright, um, about a decade ago, uh, he has admitted this publicly a number of times, kind of you know recruited some guys that he had – not recruited those kind of guys in the past, and it kind of blew up on him, and he completely readjusted his recruiting philosophy after that. And I'm not going to say Javon Quinterly, Quinterly is that kind of guy, but he's kind of looking like that kind of guy at this at this point. It, it's really – I mean, this is kind of a – as we were recording this podcast, we're at a weird stage here. So Quinterly posts an Instagram story, and, of course, as you say, he on the Instagram story, it's just a black screen with a small text, so it's my second choice for a reason – well, the reason why Villanova was your second choice is you were caught up in the FBI case, and <laughs> the FBI believes that Book Richardson was trying to pay you and your family to go to, to Arizona. So that's why, I mean, that's why you're a Villanova yeah, in the first place. Yeah, let's not act like you were just like you, you picked some other school because you preferred it to Villanova without um, alleged NCAA violations attached to it's, it. It's also just not a good look to bring that back into the fold, to remind everyone of why you're at VU in the first place. Like, the, your origin story as a recruit getting to college is not is not a great one to begin with. Um, it has been bizarre. We've talked about it on this podcast, how Quinterly has not been a factor, particularly in a season in which Villanova has needed more at point guard overall. And, you know, there was some discussion about maybe he's got a little bit of an injury, but, you know, clearly hasn't been just that. Clearly has been frustrated. And then it gets weird. Like, he that posts, then it gets deleted. And then... On his Instagram page, there's all of these bizarre, different kind of images and account screen grabs, and people were calling him out on social media for trying to fake a hack at this point. God knows what is actually happening with Javon Quinterly and or his social media slash Instagram account, but this is now brought in. Uh, it is brought to public light something that might have been simmering to a boil, for the past two, three, four weeks, who the hell knows? But uh, this is now something that 
you know, the next time Villanova plays, you got to figure Jay Wright's going to get asked about it. Quinterly himself is going to have to take this on. Uh, is he already decided that he's out no matter what? Is he going to transfer, you know, in the next week or two? We don't know. We can get to actual the game and Villanova's performance in a second here. But to me, the Quinterly stuff is super fascinating because we don't see this happen at a school like Villanova. In particular, and this is a little bit of just a – let's tug behind the curtain just a little bit. In recent seasons – uh, Villanova has been a very, very fun team to watch, been great, but from a media perspective, it's almost gotten uh, Patriots-like in that the players, they, they never really said a bunch. Like, in fact, it was almost like a running gag among media at last season's Final Four. It's like, who can possibly get water from this stone that is Villanova? Just the way Jay Wright ran that program, the way everyone bought in, and the way that the players were they were fine they were great kids but they were just brutally boring quotes like they were not letting you in whatsoever and so for this to kind of come out the way that it has with Quinterly and him not getting production not getting minutes by the way I don't even believe he deserves to be on the floor I mean he's not a great defender he hasn't been able to produce turning it over a lot so he hasn't even proved it when he's gotten into games let alone how bad he might have been in practice Parish. so yeah this is um this is certainly quite the interesting storyline that's that's cropping up here in what was otherwise expected to be a relatively slow week college hoops well the point you make about his um lack of anything when he has actually played is worth noting because any debate about whether Javon Quinterly is good right now is a pointless debate he stinks um when he's been on the first off let's just make this very simple no coach in America decides that he just doesn't want to play a five-star freshman Mm -hmm. right You, you 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 don't just go I don't you know if he could play he'd be playing when he's on the court this season, he's shooting 26.9% from the field, 17.6% from three-point range. He has more turnovers than assists. He stinks. All right. The, 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 so if you want to talk about Quinterly, the way to talk about him is, should you just play him anyway? Mm-hmm. It, it's, not, it's not whether he deserves to play. He's not one of the better he's – not, he's not a good player. The question is, if you are Villanova trying to reach whatever it is you're trying to reach – do you have to allow somebody who is as talented as he is um, to just play through mistakes, to play while not being good? Because ultimately, the the goal for, I don't want to say any basketball team, but most basketball teams should be to, to figure out a way to get your most talented people on the court as often as possible. And he is, according to all of the recruiting rankings, which might just end up being wrong, but he, you know, he's a five-star Point guard. Um, so that's the question. If you're Jay Wright, do you just, in the spirit of trying to see if you can tap into something and B, making sure he doesn't transfer on you, do you just let him play through mistakes? What do you make of that? I mean, real quick here, two things off that. One, maybe, but then it's all about like what messages this might send to future recruits as well. Like, If you're going to do that... What message does it send to the rest of the team, I guess? If, if Quinterly and uh, – hold on. We both believe he wasn't hacked, right? We we both believe that, that one, he posted no. that, and, two, he screen-grabbed these other accounts on Instagram to make it appear that, as though he was hacked. I'm, I'm, I'm on that ship. Are you with me? He was not hacked. I okay. mean, that's ridiculous. Who's hacking Javon Quinterly? <laughs> Stop. <laughs> I know. No, okay, he, yeah. was, he wasn't right, hacked. Right, he so, was pissed so, off. Okay, so – And okay. He, got, he got – he did what people do all the time. But for most people, it doesn't become a national story. He got frustrated, and he 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 puts something 
um, for public consumption that very quickly he realized I should not have done that. Yeah, total total heat of the moment thing. He might have, for all we know, like truly instantly regretted it. Face went flush. What have I just done? I would complete emotional decision. I instantly regret it. Who knows? Maybe him and the coaching staff had an incredible uh, chat as we're recording this podcast and things are going to be better. Who knows? But if you do, if if Wright does what you're saying here, Parrish, you are potentially sending a message to the rest of the team that if, if you act out like this, and you just get on the floor, that might work. But there's also the other part of this. Like, obviously, you want to try and recruit the best possible players for your program. And when you're now at the level Villanova's at, yes, you're going to be involved in five-star guys. And if you're going to have issues with Quinterly, it just it can, it can impede that process a bit if you're a five-star. As you said, no coach doesn't want to play his five-star freshman because when you can recruit successfully five-star freshmen to your program and put them on the floor immediately and, and have them earn minutes and play well and be a good team right away, it makes other five-star freshmen one, two, three years down the line consider going to your school. So it actually is momentum in a good way. That's not happening with Quinterly right now. So I'm with you entirely. If Quinterly was good enough, Wright would be putting him on the floor because it benefits his long-lasting recruiting battles with other players down the way. If he was good enough to be on the floor, he would be on the floor because, A, it makes your team better, and then secondly, the point you made is exactly right. Um, it, it it helps you recruit other five-stars and heralded players, or at the very least, it prevents other coaching staffs from saying, be careful about going to Villanova because, trust me, that's happening right now. You know, Any five-star player or highly recruited player – that is being recruited by, and I don't even know if this guy exists, but for the purposes of the conversation, just play along. Um, you're being recruited by Kentucky, by Duke, by Villanova. Well, John Calipari and Mike Krzyzewski, well, they might not actually be saying this, but it is in, uh, it, it's implied. Hey, we are committed to playing our freshmen. We'll let you play through mistakes. We've been doing it for years. Now, be careful about going to another school that isn't committed to doing what we are showing – uh, right now, and have consistently over the years that we'll do, which is if you are heralded and you are planning to maybe just do one year in college, come with us. You're going to play. Uh, maybe that Big East school, you you, you might not because they got a dude right now who everybody watched play for years on the grassroots circuit, and everybody thought he was great. Everybody thought he was a five-star, and now he's buried on a bench getting DNPs, playing only one minute in nationally televised games. That stuff um, gets used against you. Fairly or unfairly. So if you're trying to argue that's why Jay should be playing Quinterly no matter what, that, that is, that's sort of where it starts. Like, A, you don't want him to get frustrated and transfer because he might. And B, you don't want it to be used against you going forward uh, when it comes to, to high-level, high-stakes recruiting battles. The flip side, again, is, hey, I'm just going to play. And this is sort of what Bill Self has forever uh, subscribe to, and I think perhaps to a lesser extent, Roy Williams, I'm going to play the guys that give me the best opportunity to win a game today. And if that happens to be my five-star freshman, terrific. But if not, then it just doesn't. I mean, there are different ways to do this. Um, but but this way, you know, benching and never rarely playing a five-star freshman, it does, it, it, it does get a lot of attention. It does. Okay. So um, in terms of Villanova's you know progress you were you were more right than I was um I after the Michigan disaster uh and even after the Furman one I I was with you uh, or, or not with you uh, in saying like I think Villanova's going to turn this they're going to be better they're going to be fine they're going to be the best team 
Well, the loss to Penn. Penn's good, by the way. You know, I will shout Penn here. I mean, they, they're they 9-2. and two. It was their first win over Villanova as a ranked team since, like, the mid to late 80s. Um, and they have they defeated Miami uh, earlier this month, which which was a solid win. So 9-2, and two, not a bad uh, Ivy League team. They're going to be right there with Harvard. Could well be in the NCAA tournament. So it's not a good loss for Villanova. I'm not saying that whatsoever. But it was in Penn's building. Penn's a quality team. And I'm sure Jay Wright knew that they'd be in a battle given what uh, Villanova has and hasn't been yet this season. But the Wildcats... I don't when I look when I look at the team and it was weird watching the game perish. In the final 5 minutes they looked young, panicked, out of sorts like it didn't look like Villanova the way that they were running their offense or not taking bad shots. Um you know, part of that in my opinion is the fact that you had Jermaine Samuels, Cole Swider on the court, Sadiq Bey who actually had a couple of nice plays there. Um they're just not used to that. They they really felt a squeeze. But even like like Phil Booth saved him a couple of times when he hit some threes. But Pascal wasn't quite as aggressive as he needed to be. Uh, very bizarre overall. So my question for you is this, Parrish. And you can keep on with Nova if you want. But like, who is the best team in the Big East right now? Because the only undefeated team is St. John's, which is 9-0. But has played a terrible schedule for the most part to this point. So we don't really know how good St. John's is or isn't. So then, But you, you put them... You put Villanova by default, I guess. Butler 7-2. and two. They've got an interesting game this weekend. We'll talk about it more on Friday against Indiana. Marquette's 8-2. and two. It's been fairly solid. Seton Hall's been up and down. It's got the win against um, Kentucky. Providence just lost its best freshman, A.J. Reeves, for four to six weeks. This is more of the takeaway to me is that Villanova losing last night highlights how dramatic a step back it is for the conference because it's Definitely nowhere near what it was last season or the season before or the season before that. And now there's no there's no flagship team within the context of this season. Maybe it's St. John's, but we ha- we don't know that yet. They need to play better teams, and so it's uh, it's not a good season for the Big East so far. Uh, to answer your question, I think Marquette's the best team in the Big East. It's the only team I have in the top 25 and one from the Big East right now, um, and they're 26th. So I don't think there's a great team in the league. And that's quite different from last season, as you point out, when the league got two number one seeds, Villanova and Xavier. But Marquette is sitting here at eight and two. Uh, the only losses are to Kansas. That's a single digit loss on a neutral court. And then they got they got blown out at Indiana. Um, but Indiana is is good. I've got Indiana 25th, I believe, in the top 25 and one. And then over the weekend, Marquette beat. Wisconsin, it was a home game. They needed overtime to do it. But either way, you know, Wisconsin's a nationally ranked team, top 15 at Ken Palm. I would, if I had to pick right now, I would pick Marquette to win the Big East. But I don't know that there's a second weekend team in the league. See, in terms of second weekend, you can make it to the second weekend of the NCAA tournament. Yeah. Um... I mean, let me, let me be clear. They can. Yeah, Obviously, anybody can make it to the second weekend of the NCAA tournament. But if we're really talking about Uh, Sweet 16, best 16 teams in America. I don't think there's a top 16 team in the Big East right now. Yeah, you could even push that further and say, you know, if you don't, if you want to even say, you know, top 20 to top 22, 23 or so, um, those might not qualify as just like surefire second weekend kind of teams, and we might not be there. Now, Marquette, we'll see. They, I've seen them in person. They've got some real, uh, real upside. In fact, I would say that they've got the potential to be better because Marcus Howard has not even been as good as as we expected him to be from three-point range. So is he going to is he going to uh, 
um, impress to the mean as opposed to regress. Um, I, I think that might be that might be possible. The Hauser brothers are very good, so I, I think I'm with you. Um, but the Big East overall is just it's it's a bit vexing, um, and and with Villanova. You know, I'm not sure what else there is to say about them right here on this podcast. They've they, they, they've got to get it fixed, and they got they go to Kansas next. I mean, right. they they arguably have the the top one two historic back to back games in terms of venue. They're at the Palestra, and then they go to Fog Island. That's awesome for the uh, for the views around them. But um, just terrible whiplash here. They're not going to be expected to win. We'll have a hell of a conversation if we're talking Sunday night and, and Villanova has defeated Kansas at Kansas. Um, do not think that is going to happen at all. And uh, with a loss there, they'd be 8-4. and four. I'll wrap it up with this. They haven't had three losses in non-conference play since 2013. This is obviously their worst, se- their worst season since 2013. They've been a one or a two seed in 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. And so that year, in 2012-2013, they lost four games out of league, finished 20-14, and 14, made the NCAA tournament, and lost immediately to North Carolina. They were a nine seed that season, I believe. And the season before that, they actually missed the tournament. It's the only time Villanova has not made the tournament since 2005. I don't think we're sliding to that point, necessarily. Um, and I don't want to just, just you know hammer this point again and again because you brought it up. But this is even more evidence, just losing so many dudes to the NBA. It's, it's just it's clearly having a significant impact on Villanova to the point where no one thought it would be like this. No one. If you've watched them play, it's not just that they're 8-3 and three and they've lost three games. If you've watched them play, even the games they've won for the most part, they are nowhere near the team they were last season. No, I mean, they lost, again, four top 35 picks in the NBA draft, including the National Player of the Year. And the thing that was supposed to ease the you know, the, the, supposed, the thing that was supposed to, among the things that was supposed to minimize um, those losses to not make uh, Jay Wright's Wildcats slip too far um, was was the freshman class. And the freshman class has not been good. Sadiq, Bay's the only, Sadiq Bay was the lowest rated prospect in the class. He's the only one having a real uh, impact from a statistical perspective. And then we'll move on. Um, I did think this was interesting. Um Last season, they obviously played from beyond the arc. Jay Wright's been ahead of the curve a bit in college basketball of you know, t- trying to replicate what most of the best teams in the NBA are doing now, which is you know playing from beyond the arc. Um, they last year, uh, 47.5% of their field goal attempts were three-point attempts. 47, basically, you know, every other one. The great thing was they made 40.1% of them. Consequently, consequently they had the, the nation's best offense. Um, right now, they're shooting even uh, a higher rate of three-point attempts. 52.3% of their field goal attempts are three-point attempts. That ranks third nationally. The issue is they're only making 34.3% of them. That ranks 169th uh, nationally. So um, they're they're... I don't want to say they're playing the same way, and they certainly don't have the same personnel, but they are, from a shot distribution perspective, they are, even at a higher rate than they did last season, taking shots from beyond the arc, but they don't have the same kind of shooters, and they're not making um, anything close to the same rate, and it's it's showing up. It doesn't mean that they're terrible offensively, because they're not, um, but they're not anything close to what they were last season. And on the defensive end, they're all they're even worse. And the result is 
is is a situation where they're now sitting here with uh, eight and three record, um, two losses to sub one hundred teams. And you noted that they go to Kansas next. That's almost certainly a loss. Uh, then they get Connecticut the following Saturday on a neutral court. That's a Connecticut team that's not great, but it is a Connecticut team that beat Syracuse on a neutral. And if you beat Syracuse on a neutral, you can certainly beat, at this point, um, it, it seems clear, Villanova on a neutral. So we could reasonably be talking about, you know, a couple of weeks from now, a Villanova team that's won two of the program, that's won two of the nas- uh, past three national championships that is going to enter Big East play, maybe, uh, with an eight and five record, nobody uh, nobody saw that coming. Uh, we focused a little bit on the Big East in terms of who do we think will win the league. We're in agreement, I believe, with Marquette. You also had a conversation uh, with Big East Commissioner Val Ackerman um, about the league reaching a, a a deal to continue to hold its tournament at Madison Square Garden, which is a huge deal uh, because other leagues, most notably, I think the Big Ten. Uh, wanted to get into that building in that week. The building has committed to the Big East, so that's great for the Big East. But you also talked to her about possible expansion, and it does appear um, that the league is at least open to seriously considering adding an 11th school to create a true round robin, doesn't it? Isn't that what you brought came away from that conversation thinking? Yeah, absolutely. And, and listen, me, Val Ackerman's done a great job as the Beast Commissioner. i got to start with that. She is, uh, she is terrific, and maybe she is just simply wired to speak on the record the way other conference commissioners aren't. Um, I, I Frankly, if I talk with Bob Bowlesby, Jim Delaney, Larry Scott, you name any of the big conference commissioners, I don't think they would have gone quite as far if the situation was as true as it is with the Big East with me as Val did. She, to be clear, she said we, you know, there are not any expansion talks happening right now. But she did say they talk about it internally. And basically, it, it's your duty as a conference commissioner to almost address this behind the scenes continuously, like annually, to look at, okay, what's the landscape of college athletics? Do we see potential expansion opportunities happening other other places? And would we want that? And so at Sunday's press conference, this got announced, the Big East and the MSG uh, deal, which is renewed until 2028. And I'll, I'll circle back to that in just a second. But this is where Val brought up uh, 11 teams or 12 teams potentially and and how that, you know, might benefit. And I, I asked, I, I said, you know, who would who would be a good fit? She, of course, wouldn't go into those specifics, but she did lay out um, a lot of the boxes that would need to be checked. And then I said, you know, have you had um, several schools reach out? And she said, yes. I said, would several be more than three? She paused for a second. And she said, yes. Schools that come up, I, I basically think you run down the Atlantic 10, because if you look at all the other leagues, Parish, with the exception of UConn in the American Athletic Conference, and UConn fans desperately want that school to get back into the Big East for a number of reasons, I, I don't see that happening because of because football actually makes money for as terrible as UConn football is. It actually makes the school money, so I don't see them taking that away. Um, if you remove UConn, though, I think schools like St. Louis, uh, VCU, Richmond, Dayton, Rhode Island, Davidson, St. Joseph's, like those would be the schools that would, in my opinion, would be the ones that have approached the Big East, even in an, inf- in an informal way, to see, listen, if we ever wanted to expand, you know, here's what we might be able to bring. Would you be open to us? Because Val said it's got to have basketball first in the Atlantic 10. All the programs are basketball first, okay? Um, geography would mean a lot. Fan base being willing to travel for the Madison Square Garden uh, you know, annual uh, pilgrimage every March. So 
I don't know if the Big East will expand. I think if it does, it will go to 11, not 12, because it really wants to keep the round robin. And the only way you can keep the double round robin is if you go to 11, 10, you face every opponent twice, 10 opponents, that's 20 games. Um, but there's a, there's a lot happening there. Big East has done well for itself. This is now a, an unexpected step-back year, Parrish. Um, but it is it is certainly out there. It will be something to track in, in the months and years to come. I don't know if it will expand, uh, but it is it is certainly buzzing. And I would I would close with this before we just get to the – I want to circle back to the MSG thing after you talk. But um, the, the fact that it's this out there to this point – I think maybe makes it a little more likely than not that within, say, five or six years, we do have an 11th team in the Big East. Uh, the competition for that spot would be fierce, though. I would add St. Louis, I think. Yeah, they've got a lot. St. Louis is uh, – it has the money, the facilities. It's in a good market. The question is, does the Big East want to have another Midwest team? Or does it want, if it adds an 11th, does it want someone in a pocket of the greater Northeast? Because, um, frankly, uh, Val said geography does mean, does mean something when it comes to this. And then it's a, it's a private school. Um, and how big is the fan base and would they travel well? I think they'd be a fine, fine candidate. I don't know if St. Louis would necessarily be at the top, but I know SLU fans uh, believe that, they, that it should be. Yeah, I mean, it's got – I don't know if you've ever been to that campus, but it's, um, you know, I don't know if it's technically downtown or on the outskirts of downtown, but it's very much in the city. And they've got a beautiful uh, on-campus facility. When that team is good, um, the fans do show up. You know, the, the, obviously it, it, it's it's dipped a little bit, but, you know, Travis uh, Ford has is recruiting at a level above its normal historical standard. And they're off to a seven and two start this season. Uh, they've got uh, a win over uh, two Big East teams uh, already: uh, Seton Hall and and Butler. And they were picked in the preseason to win the Atlantic Ten. So I think that if you are just if you if you're running the Big East and you decide we want to add an eleven school because we want to have a true round robin uh, twenty game basketball schedule, then you. Uh, then you start looking at candidates. I think St. Louis makes as much, if not more, sense than 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 anybody else because uh, I do think that you can win in basketball there. Uh, when they are good, you get you've got fans that show up and presumably would travel to New York City um, for the league tournament, and then it's a great market and it's a great television market. And why wouldn't you want those things? Yeah, no, the, all all valid points. Um... And the fact that the Big East, five years removed from, 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 uh, you know, a scenario and an environment in which people thought that the league would struggle to keep up, that hasn't been the case again this season. It it, it might be slipping back, but it's still going to be better than the Pac-12, by the way. Like it's it's it, even if it's not as good as it was the past three four years when it was really really good, uh, it's still there. So this is a big win overall, and it's why just to close on this topic, the Garden agreement was so big. So this is how this all played out. The Big Ten played last season a week before the Big East had its annual spot on the calendar for its tournament. So about uh, you know a few weeks after the NCAA tournament ends, um, the Big East and, and the Garden get together and just start discussing because there was an opt-out opportunity in 2022. And uh, the Big East wanted to take advantage of, of basically the momentum the league had created. You mentioned it. Two one-seeds, Xavier Villanova last season, Villanova two of the past three national championships. And 
it reaffirmed how good and legitimate the league is because the Big Ten and I think the ACC, like those in so many ways, those are the two most powerful conferences um, in in America, I would say Big Ten for sure between both sports, and then the ACC, which is not as good in football as in basketball. The heft it carries within hoops is no joke whatsoever. So the biggies to be able to get this done, and and Ackerman told me it's essentially an airtight agreement. There are no opt outs anymore. So this they will have the building. The days leading up to Selection Sunday until 2028, um, it makes it the longest continuously running uh, conference tournament event in the same building in college basketball. It's been there since 83, and we think Big East, we think MSG. It was a huge deal for them, but you know, the Big Ten, the ACC, no doubt about it, could have offered a lot of interesting um, alternatives. Credit, I guess, to the Garden to to having the faith in this because I wouldn't have faulted the Garden if it didn't want to do this. But the Big East locks in, and now we wait and see if the ACC or Big Ten is ever willing to take that week before because the Garden is saying, we'll keep that week open for you if you want it. If you want to have your league tournament before the Big East, come on in. We'd love to have you again. The Big Ten said they probably will not do that again. We'll see if the ACC wants to take advantage. I'm guessing it won't. Um, so this was, you know, significant from that standpoint of how the the major conference tournaments are uh, are assembled in the decade to come. And I don't think you can understate how huge this is for the Big East because Ackerman told me there was no second alternative, there was no second option. We didn't, you know, get into looking to other cities. This will help us fund 22 scholarship sports across the conference. It was. Uh, it was the number one priority for the league this season. They got it done, and I just don't think you can overstate how huge it was for the league. Before we get out of here, um, Mark Few, the Gonzaga coach, made headlines on Sunday night after you know his team's close loss to Tennessee. He sort of went in on NCAA president Mark Emmert a bit, basically uh, encouraging, if not demanding, that he act now. Emmert is on record saying that um, – no action is go- going to be taken against any school that was caught up in this FBI investigation before the 2019 NCAA tournament, which means schools that might face uh, punishment going forward, Kansas, like Arizona, like Louisville, like Maryland, um, are going to be eligible for the 2019 NCAA tournament, even if perhaps they shouldn't. You subsequently talked to Mark, and here's an interesting quote that he gave you. He said, it's not going to do us any good if the cheating schools beat us and the NCAA takes away their banner four years from now. Do something, man. Do it right now. Don't hide behind, well, it takes time. Not if it means something to you, it doesn't take time. You're supposed to be the czar. That's what I'd do if I were the sheriff. I'd say, if you have a problem with this, fine. But if I find anything in your program, five years. Five years with no postseason, and the coach is done for five years. End quote. This is um, very similar to something he told me off the record in Maui. We were sort of talking after a game. I didn't know he was going to go public with it the way he did on Sunday night and then subsequently with you. But it seems pretty clear to me his point is, um, listen, Kansas is ranked number one in the country right now. That means that, at least according to some people, they, they, have a, they, they are a real favorite if not the favorite, they're among the favorites, if not the favorite, to win the national championship. Um, It seems pretty clear, based on uh, under oath testimony, that whether Bill Self knew or didn't know, whether the staff knew or didn't know, that they have benefited, benefited from a player perspective from 
somebody committing NCAA violations. And what good does it do me at Gonzaga if I've got a team good enough to win a national championship, we play Kansas in the Elite Eight or the Final Four or the national championship game, they beat us, and then the NCAA punishes them four months later and says, you're not going to be able to play in the 2020 NCAA tournament. That's your punishment for violating NCAA rules. I, you know, In college basketball, perhaps Duke is an exception, maybe Kentucky, maybe even Kansas. But at most places, when you actually have a team good enough to win a national championship, it's a, a once every five year, once every 10 year, once maybe every generation type of thing and mark clearly has a team that's good enough to do that this season and he doesn't think with schools that have allegedly if not undeniably operated outside of the rule book and i don't know that i disagree with him. i don't disagree with him at all uh, he has said this stuff off record to me previously, and I said, as soon as you're willing to say it on the record, please call me. So that's why when I saw what he said uh, after the Tennessee loss, I hit him up and said, hey, let's uh, let's chat about that just a little bit further. And then he wanted to, again, just a little bit of a tug behind the curtain. He also wanted to clarify because he had given a quote that made it seem like he was throwing North Carolina and Roy Williams under the bus when he was saying, you've got schools out here doing it the right way. Take a look at one that's won the past two national championships or two of the past three national championships, you know, referring to Villanova and inadvertently not, you know, not including North Carolina in that when the reality is Gonzaga and Mark Few uh, probably respect Roy Williams more than any coach in the game. And I'm sure plenty of listeners are like, you've got to be kidding me with this, given all the stuff that happened at North Carolina. I'm just telling you, um, Mark Few thinks Roy Williams is one of the most upstanding guys in the sport of college basketball. So he also wanted to make sure that that clarification was out there. But I said, let's circle back to the Emmert stuff. And he said a few other things that I opted not to in- to include in the piece because they were they were frankly more uh, they were more beneficial for stuff down the road and, and more for on background. But he's absolutely right. He he wants Mark Emmert to be someone that's not just going to give out statements saying we're going to let the process take its course. You've got a season playing right now. You've got trials that have concluded. You've got more that are still to come. You've got all this. All of this stuff out there, documentation, things that have been said under oath that are implicating these schools, why can't you use what's been used right now and actually you know, speed up this process, streamline it, actually make some sort of judgment here so that the schools that are doing it right don't have to face the consequences? You know, He also said something along the lines of, like, they're going to get those memories. They're going to experience that stuff. They're going to receive the good publicity. It could be schools that haven't even necessarily been brought up uh, in this way or another, but you, you damn well know that there are coaches – that have gone to the NCAA and made complaints about this school or that school. It might not even have to do with the FBI, but why don't you do something about it? He's absolutely got a good point about this, and he's not the only one. That's the other part of this. It's like uh, Few is is kind of sick of just uh, bitching about this behind the scenes, and good for him because, frankly, college basketball needs more like this. They need more coaches, and he's not the only one. There are other coaches that, that feel this way, and they have not been quite as – adamant at, at getting it out there, but maybe Mark will be the one that uh, that spurs it on. It also tells you, Parrish, a hell of a lot about Mark View's uh, security with himself, security with his job, security with everything, because you just don't have coaches at the high major level, and Gonzaga is that, despite its conference affiliation, in football or basketball that take aim at the president of the NCAA. But Fuse, he's like, we don't cheat. 
I know we don't cheat. I'm sick of the teams and coaches that do cheat. I'm sick of the teams and coaches that get around these rules that even if the varying degrees of which they cheat, I know it happens and there's nothing happening to these schools. And I, I've just, I've run into it for 15 years and he's, he's just done with it. So um, this is all in the court report, by the way, my Wednesday column. So is the Big East stuff and there's Kentucky stuff. There's a whole just pot of a, of a, of a bunch of stuff in there. So please give that a read, but it leads with the few stuff and the Big East stuff. But I am, I am, I'm in fervent agreement with him and, and the general point he's making in regard to Emmert. Meantime, literally this week, the NCAA extends Mark Emmert's contract yes. through at least 2023. And whatever. I, I don't think Mark Emmert's a bad guy. I just think he happens to be um, the leader of the NCAA. And when you are the leader of the NCAA, you're going to end up uh, sounding ridiculous more often than not because you have to um, defend and rationalize things that reasonable people don't even try to defend or, or rationalize. But I will say he is a little bit like a politician who has lost the trust of his uh, constituents. constituents. Yeah. He's a little bit like a politician who people just don't believe in him anymore. It doesn't matter if he does a good job or a bad job. People don't believe in him anymore. And and Mark Few is among the people who don't believe in him anymore. And so I think it's just uh, in, incredibly difficult to try to lead. And when you are the president of the NCAA, you are uh, a leader. You need to be able to lead. And if people don't believe in you anymore, you can't lead. And so I, I don't know if the next president of the NCAA will be better or worse or comparable to, to Mark Emmert. But I do think for a variety of reasons, they, they need a new leader. They need a new face. They need a new voice. Because a real leader, like Mark uh, Few accur accurately pointed out, um, could stand up and do something. You can. You know, I, I know Mark Emmert will try to pretend that, well, we got to do it this way and it's got to be done like this. No, you can do what you want to do. And the point Mark Few makes is punish Louisville right now. Punish Kansas right now. He doesn't say these these schools um, specifically, but these are the ones he means. Punish Maryland right now. Punish the cheaters right now and, and make them accept their punishment. Tell them, you accept this now or we, we, we will investigate thoroughly. And if we find things in your program, then the punishment will be five times as worse, uh, ten times as bad. And I think, you know, uh, I, I, that would at least mm -hmm. instill some confidence that maybe the NCAA is going to do something about this. Because as recently as Monday afternoon, I was on a radio station as a guest, and the hosts were like, the NCAA is not going to do anything about this, are they? And I actually don't think that's true. I do think the NCAA is going to do something eventually. But the fact that there are people who don't believe in that is is a fundamental problem with the leadership of that organization. It is. And the public, if, if frankly, it wants it wants the punishments handed out uh, as soon as possible. Um, it, but it's it, uh, you know it's not going to happen. I mentioned on a previous podcast, like I wasn't surprised when Emmert said what he said and that nothing was going to come before the end of the season. I never expected to. doesn't mean that it shouldn't. just knew that it wouldn't. And I think few is a little bit ahead of the curve here in that when we get to March – and we'll have had, as long as the second trial doesn't 
as long as it happens, um, that'll be the Chuck Person trial. The the assist the other uh, three assistants will go to trial in April. You're going to be point is uh, if that trial has happened, you're going to have come off that advance of the other trial. The NCAA tournament is going to be happening, and this is all going to be stirred up again. There's going to be a lot more people talking about it because more coaches will be asked about it at press conferences. Frankly, Mark Emmert will be asked about it vigorously. Um, and I do mean vigorously, uh, at the Final Four when he has his annual press conference there. And you will have, I think, a, a lot of outcry, and it'll be very interesting to see which coaches say what and how Emmert's stance does or doesn't change by then. I have, to, I have a suspicion that it will not. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry MF and Teagle. He's the legend. Shouts to Larnell. And please, if you haven't done it already, Go subscribe to the Ion College Basketball Podcast via Apple Podcasts. Rate it favorably. Five stars. Nice comments. That's all we've ever asked from you. And to those of you who have been subscribing and leaving new comments uh, lately, uh, it does not go unnoticed. Thank you for taking the time to do that. If you haven't done it yet, it, it really only takes seconds. So please, uh, go try to knock that out when you get a chance. And we will talk to you again on Friday morning. Until then, take care.